Dotnet Rocks, episode 1085, with guest David Simmons. Recorded Monday, January 5th, 2014. And we're back. Yes. We're back. Dotnet Rocks again. And a save show. I love this. Yeah, this is this show was originally we we started recording with David when we were in London at uh, NDC London, and the band was warming up at the time, and we heard kick drums and check check one two, and it was just too loud and obnoxious. And <laughs> yeah, decided to. Scrap There's only it. so much noise you can have in the background of a show. But we're happy to have David back here. David Simons, he's coming up in just a few minutes. But first. Let's move on to a little thing we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, this is a project on GitHub and CodePlex, and it's a C-sharp open-source managed operating system. What? Cosmos.CodePlex.com. I remember this. This has been around for a while. Yeah, well, uh, the latest release was June 15th, 2014. Okay. At 3 a.m. Gotta love that. (laughs) So, you know, it was a real release. Well, you know, it was 3 a.m. I don't know if that has been adjusted for time zone. Maybe it was. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, I love the fact that, you know, 3 a.m. release. That's great. That's awesome. It is awesome. But, uh, you know, here's the thing. And there's a few comments. And some people are like, hey, why don't you do it in C++ or C? You know, um, because, yeah, C-sharp managed managed languages aren't great operating system languages. That's not the point. That's not what you'd think. Right, yeah. That's not the point. The point is to figure out what's involved in writing an operating system. Yeah, absolutely. uh, It's code I could read. I'm sure that Scott Hanselman talked about this, like, 10 years ago. Yeah, well, it was actually 13 years ago, wasn't it? Uh, or 12 years ago when we started .NET Rocks. I interviewed him. Yeah. Before, you know, before he was a superstar. Before he was Scott Hanselman. Before he was the Hanselmeister. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he said he had written an operating system, and I think it was in C Sharp as well. Yeah. Yeah, it might not have been this one, but something along the same lines. That's very funny. Yep. All right, dude. You there you got, go. You've amused me. You know, if you're looking for something to do on the weekend, you know, you want to just poke around and see what an operating system looks like in code that you can read, C-sharp developers, that is, check it out, cosmos.codeplex.com. Absolutely. All right, Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 957, and that's the one we did with Rob Connery. We talked about Biggie. Yeah, Biggie. His data store. And Eric Potter had this great comedy. He says, I love this episode. One of the things I hoped Rob would talk about it, it was his decision to store data in plain text formatted as JSON. He talked at length about how Biggie could integrate with PostgreSQL and MongoDB, but I am most intrigued by the possibility of having a sophisticated way to store data as text. Yeah. In their famous book, The Pragmatic Programmer, Hunt and Thomas explain why they think the best format for storing knowledge persistently is plain text. Yep. Their main points are that text data can be used by most of our tools, it can be compared with a diff tool, it can be tracked with a source control tool, and it can be edited with a text editor. This gives you lots of options that aren't available if the data is stored in a proprietary format. Plain text also prevents format obsolescence. And we haven't diverged from ASCII yet, so so far so good. 
In my career, I have seen multiple instances of data being stored in database backups, but at some later date when the data is needed, the backup format is incompatible with the latest version of the database. The older version of the database has to be found and installed in order to get to the data. If the data is in plain text, I know I'll be able to read it many years from now. That's right. I'm certainly not saying that all data should be stored in plain text. In most cases, data belongs in a database, relational or otherwise. But for some data, particularly data can have a long lifetime, plain text is the best option. Yeah. The okay, great thing about Biggie is that it provides the best of both worlds. It makes it dead simple to write plain text and gives you the power of link to query it. Power of link. Here you go. I can't argue with Eric at all. Nope. Pure awesome. Eric, love it. Donnet Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a Donnet Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Windows 8. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release dozens of new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Right. And that brings us to David Simons. David is a technical lead for Softwire, a small consultancy focused on high-quality development. Since he started coding professionally, he's worked extensively on full-stack systems, making sure that the right tools are used for the right job. When not writing code, David enjoys thinking and talking about statistics, advocacy, and beer. A man after our own heart. Welcome, <laughs> David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, for the second time, I should say. But it's long yes. enough ago now that we've forgotten what we talked about before, so we can do this all fresh now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I haven't forgotten. And there's no cappuccino machine going off in the background. It's there's awesome. that, too. <laughs> well, glad to see you made it home okay. Where do we start? How about what were you talking about at, uh, at NDC London? Sure. So my talk at NDC London was called 10 Databases in an Hour, which was the kind of gimmick that every talker uses, which is just, I can't think of a nice cohesive narrative. Let's just throw lots of information at the audience and, <laughs> and hope it sticks. Firehose. So, exactly. Yeah. So uh, hopefully I was going through a lot of different databases, talking about why you might use them, why you might not want to use them, and just hoping that people will realize that there's not just one database out there in the ecosystem at the moment. There's lots of different things that people should be considering. Yeah, and I, I think your average developer knows of three or four, perhaps, you know, and thinks that they're all all that because they know of three or four. But ten, wow, yeah, ten I, usable I, things or um, ten things that have definitely been used in in real world production systems. So to that extent, they're usable. If every developer, I sorry, I doubt that any developer will want to use all of them in their coding lifetime. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for using everything. What do you start with when you uh, do your talk? What's the first database? Sure. So the, the first one that I talk about is, uh, perhaps surprisingly, is SQL. Because the NoSQL kind of movement, it started about 10 years ago, and everybody was going around saying, oh, all of this big SQL stuff, it's useless. We can't use it anymore. All of these paradigms that we've been developing for 30, 40 years, we kind of have to throw them out and start again. And, and about... You know, five years afterwards, people started realizing that they might be rubbing people up the wrong way and, and giving bad advice. Right. So, so whenever you start talking about NoSQL, the very first thing you always have to do is say, 
I'm not telling you to stop using SQL. It is very good. It is very, very good for 90% of what you use, what you do. I'm not mm-hmm. the arrogant developer who says, you're doing it wrong no matter what right. kind of you're using. So yes, still consider SQL. Still remember that relational databases have got a lot of history, that they integrate very well with almost every application. They've got the most mature ecosystem out there. They're good but at just, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, definitely. It's just that the transactional velocity wasn't one of them. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, so transactional velocity, um, it can often be quite hard to scale them out wider, and, and we'll see yeah. some of these databases are, are particularly good at, at kind of scale scalability. Um, but also sometimes we're storing data that just isn't the right shape. Yes. This kind of idea of rows with links to other things, nobody in the real world thinks about things that way. And anybody who tells you that a relational database actually is the way that they model something in their mind mm. has just been brainwashed by the <laughs> fact that they've been working with SQL for so long. <laughs> it's true but we've been working with sql for that long it's just deeply embedded in my mind we're it's, used to the pain yeah it's like living with chronic pain right exactly so kind of once i convince everybody that yes sql is just a migraine and that we should start considering other things which i think you two are on the side of now <laughs> um, yep. i move on to talking about some of the other ones that you say that all, all the developers probably have had experience with if they've at least heard of it and read about it if not used it themselves and, and mongodb is is a key example to that sure absolutely it was the poster child for actually let's start doing things differently so MongoDB, a nice open source database, although there are uh, paid for licenses, commercial licenses, if, if you're interested uh, in kind of support or, or more features, uh, it's a document store. So you just store things in JSON. You just have lots of different blobs sitting in your, in your Mongo instance, and they provide a very thin query layer over the top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't have a lot of the overheads that SQL does. It doesn't have this kind of row-based structure. It doesn't have these normal forms that you need to store data in to get the most out of your database. And a lot of people say that that makes it worthless. But it just means that the queries you're running are, are much more limited than they otherwise would be. Uh, but it does, the kind of the flip side to that is the less overheads in adding the data means that you can write a lot faster. It means that you can scale a lot wider. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I know we did a show a while ago. We were talking uh, with some folks about mixing NoSQL and SQL together. And the whole idea of you have an object, why are you making the customer wait while you decompose the object into rows and columns? Why not just store it, let the customer go, and now uh, asynchronously offline from the customer's time, you decompose it into rows and columns. So you get sort of the best of both worlds. I, I think Mongo falls into that category pretty nicely. You can just hand it an object and it'll hold on to it for you. But then there is the, the what you pay for is you don't know the, the single source of truth all the time. Right? Because you may be querying against something that hasn't stuck yet. Although, I mean, typically you're talking about asynchronous, you're talking about milliseconds, right? Right. Well, you know, in the I don't know about how MongoDB works, but I know in RavenDB, when we were talking to Ayande Rahin about that, you know, when you save something, indexes get rebuilt asynchronously. Um, the writes may not happen right away, but reads are very fast, but the, the writing is sort of lazy. So it, it can be more than milliseconds, you know, if you're, if you're looking to uh, get the latest single source of truth. Yeah, this is definitely a big kind of consideration when uh, NoSQL became a lot larger, is that all of a sudden you weren't getting immediate consistency that you were with the acid transactions of SQL. Right. And and 
people are having to make this decision now. It's not something we had to think about. But when you get additional things in return for only getting eventual consistency, then you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? So one of the databases I talked about was uh, Voldemort. So Voldemort implement the Dynamo uh, system, the Dynamo paradigm. Can we say that was... word on the show? <laughs> <laughs> Just sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. sorry. The database that must not be named, the, uh, the open source int- uh, yeah. implementation of Dynamo, uh, which is Amazon realizing that actually, so Amazon, a very big retailer that you would have thought can't make these kind of trade-offs. Right. Uh, Realized that the the uptime was so much more important than the consistency. Right. If they if they sold one too many things, then it's, it's not the end of the world for them. Yes. But but if their if their website went down for even a second, or their database was inaccessible for a second, then they would be start. They would be hemorrhaging thousands of pounds. So they kind of made the decision that that was worth it. I I also think that Facebook has taught the regular mortal about eventual consistency. You know, you make a post onto Facebook, it doesn't show up right away. It's eventually consistent. And if you're, if you go too quickly, you do it again, and then it's posted twice, and you look foolish. So regular mortals have now learned, that eh, stuff takes time. Yeah, definitely. And, and actually, right. Facebook have started using it as a selling point as well. Uh, they've now got their offline mode that will kind of advertise how, uh, it will advertise, ah, oh, we're just going to hold on to this place for a little bit until you get an internet connection back again. So... They've actually started being quite clever in their, their use of offline storage and asynchronous uh, consistency. Yeah, it's becoming a more normal concept. And it's also real world, right? Like stuff is, it's only in computing science that we tr- think about instantaneous consistency. Everything in the real world, like you don't reconcile your sales for the day till the end of the day. You know, during the day, the transactions are sort of in the air. It doesn't happen instantly. Yeah, no, de- definitely. I, t- I totally agree with that. It's just people have had it too good for so long that, or people were dealing with data sets small enough that they could say that they had the best of all worlds without realizing the, the trade-offs they were making with the capacity yeah. of their data. And it, it's funny how many SQL systems, often when we're talking about dealing with systems that's norm, all SQL, and they're saying, I can't put this stuff in, I can't afford to be inaccurate. It's like, uh, you know you're caching, right? We're already keeping a copy of the data outside of the database. You ser- that's what you normally serve from. Like mm-hmm. you're just ignoring the fact that you're already dealing with those inconsistencies. Yeah, um, totally. There, there are there are great architectures out there that allow you to minimize the uh, the damage that you're going to be doing. So uh, the Lambda architecture was uh, being proposed massively on the on the conference scene last year. Uh, talking about how you can have this immediate, almost real time database with batch processes going on in the background that feed back into your real-time layer um, every now and again when the ba- expensive batch processing has been done. And that's been used to great effect over the last few years. The Lambda architecture? The Lambda architecture, yeah, as in the Greek letter. Yes. And I just did a quick search and found lambda-architecture.net. Hmm. I couldn't recommend any websites, partly yeah. because I want to be partisan and partly because I haven't looked on any. Ah, uh, uh, okay. But, you know, this this is uh, an example of that model of having a batch layer and a serving layer and a speed layer so that you, you know, you're eventually consistent architecturally. Yeah, yep. it's uh, interesting, actually, that you mentioned Facebook during uh, during that conversation, because mm-hmm. face, uh, yeah, although Facebook's uh, post uh, system, so your, your timeline is uh, somewhat asynchronous, they discovered recently that their messaging system couldn't afford to be. Huh. So, so. They were, there's a very good blog post about 
uh, Facebook's decision in terms of their database for the messaging. And they talked about the considerations uh, of SQL versus Cassandra. So SQL we've talked about already, and Cassandra is again one of these uh, one of these databases that follows the Dynamo model, mm-hmm. so it utilizes eventual consistency. And they discovered that there were just too many messages. There was such a such a heavy tail of messages that they couldn't use SQL because the indexing just couldn't keep up. Sure, but but they couldn't use uh, they couldn't use eventual consistency either because the vast majority of messages were read in uh, very 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 close to when they were sent. Because people don't read messages a day after they've been sent. They're a very disposable form of communication. Right. So they've actually realized that eventual consistency wasn't right for them in that case. So even within the same application, you can have differing needs for for your data. And actually thinking about uh, for each piece of data, is it worth having a separate database storing this and a separate service serving it up uh, is quite important for for these large-scale applications. I think that's the biggest thought I've had around this whole thing on, on these different data stores. This is just this idea that there isn't one store to rue them all. You don't use Mongo and nothing else. You don't use SQL and nothing else. You use the right store for the right problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, so, yeah, just kind of finishing the uh, the Facebook story, what they decided to use in the end was to uh, utilize the Hadoop cluster that they had. And rather than just using a kind of vanilla Hadoop cluster, they put HBase over the top. So that was their way of dealing with very, very large amounts of data whilst still being able to uh, serve relatively quickly the uh, immediate data that they needed. Interesting mix. Yeah. Because you don't think of Hadoop as being fast in terms of, you know, queries per second, you think of it in terms of being quick at massive amounts of querying across a largely distributed system. Sure. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it's the power of HBase put over the top that allows you to turn what is traditionally a very horizontally scaling system in terms of processes right. into a very quick one for horizontally scaling in terms of looking for the one piece of data that you need. Yeah. So uh, actually, Hadoop's got a massive ecosystem about all the different ways in which you can query your data. Um, it is it is spectacular how big the Hadoop ecosystems become. It it's terrifying. It is. Gen- mm-hmm. I've been I've been to talks in that in which essentially every single animal that you can think of has now got a Hadoop kind of ecosystem piece named after it. It's it's fast moving faster than a lot of the other kind of environments that I've been working in in the Java environments and things like that. Hadoop is big. And trying to be more than one thing. I mean, I still think of Hadoop very much as an analytics tool. That's what we used it at Strange Loop for. And, and most folks, I think that's the way they think of it is this is, this is not for transactional work. This is for analysis. But you are saying something completely else with this whole HBase thing. Uh, I, I'm, I, I don't want to put my name on the line for this. Uh, it's this Facebook's blog post that, that recommended it. Uh, yeah. but it. It seems to have been going really well for them. Uh, the, the messaging system, I've not had any faults with it. And I use Facebook a lot. Every day, uh, you know. yeah, it's become the new messenger, hasn't it? It's kind of sad, but everybody's got a Facebook account, and everything else has gone insane. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just I, I find myself using Facebook Messenger more than I care to, more than I'm on Facebook. <laughs> okay, what's the next one? Um, so, kind of talking about large bits of data and talking about these big, long tails of data, one of the things that you might not traditionally think of as being used in a, in a database way is Elasticsearch. So Elasticsearch is another document store, so very similar to how we were thinking about Mongo, we're just storing JSON blobs there, or kind of anything you want to in right. this JSON format. 
Um, but then you have a very rich query uh, engine built over the top of that using Apache Lucene. So this gives you very, very in-depth uh, searching. You can look at words that sound a little bit like your search term. You can look at words that, um, you know, or sentences with some of the words inside it or with similar structures to it. Right. Um, we did a whole show around Elasticsearch with uh, Itamar. Right. Uh, 1067. That's right. We, we were just talking about the context of search, but the fact that it can also store data is really interesting. But it does have some drawbacks to using it as a data store, right? Like security and transactions and things like that. But you, you, yeah. know, you can't argue with the price. Yeah, no, definitely. It's um, it, it's kind of every single developer nowadays is, is ever since the TDD is dead discussion has been doing these this famous hand movement that uh that was popularized. This kind of lifting one hand up and and down. This kind of this balances. This you have to remember that for every benefit that you're getting you're probably losing some kind of some kind of flexibility yeah you're always going to pay somewhere yeah definitely and, and Elasticsearch gives you such power in terms of being able to very very quickly find pieces of data very give you very rich text searching capabilities and solve a problem that was really really hard for such a long time that yes if you can afford to lose a kind of couple of points on your security score then then this uh this is this is definitely worth it, especially since what you'll be searching is typically going to be data that is open anyway, because why else would you give people the capability to search for it? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I think we're so cynical about search because it's been so bad for so long that we resist even looking. You know, that that does Elasticsearch really fix it? Like my automatic reflex is nothing can fix search. Search is broken. But you believe you think that that really works. So the, the way that I tried to convince developers during my talk that Elasticsearch might be the way forward is by just putting up two logos on, on the screen. Uh, and my logos are Stack Overflow and GitHub. Yeah. Two, <laughs> two holy Bibles of, of development, the, kind of, the two websites that everybody goes to to do any form of development outside of work or, or even in the office. And it's just these guys have been using Elasticsearch, and, and it's just such a painless process searching on the two of them that you know something is working for them. Yeah, and it's and you're right. Those are two sites we search all the time, mm -hmm. and you don't even think about it. They just work. Yep, definitely. Uh, I've got in our notes here, we talked about a database called Eloquera. I don't want to miss it. Yep, no, Eloquera is the object store. Um, so this... We were kind of talking earlier about kind of SQL, where you have this very abstract way of storing mm -hmm. uh, rows and pointers, and then we had Mongo, which was just storing JSON blobs in the in the uh, in, in the database. And right. even though a JSON blob is closer to how we think about things in the real world, it's, it's still not exact. Whereas Eloquera just stores the uh, the C sharp objects in your database, so it's pretty much getting the RRM for free. So when you would be using uh, Entity Framework or, or similar, uh, you don't need to do that anymore. You just start persisting your, your objects to this Eloquera database, and it will store them there happily for you. So it's kind of very, very much taking the objects as we think about them and as we thought about them in our domain model and just letting them stay in the database that way. And, and we're fairly transparent what it does behind the scenes, which has its pros and cons. Right. But... But it, it is a very uh, very easy thing to, to do if you are. Um, it's a very easy thing to use if you're light on time or, or just making a very quick prototype application. 
just need, you know you know what you want to do. You want to move quickly. And in the end, yeah, we're working with objects. So the fact that something will just hold the object for you, not decompose it anyway, that's good. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, as I said, there's, there's a lot of, uh, as soon as you don't know what's going on behind a curtain, then I, I get scared. I get very scared. I kind of sure. have having flashbacks of The Wizard of Oz and the man behind the curtain, which is a... Uh, Actually, they're just tossing your uh, your object in some vague text file with no backups. Yeah. You know that I have nightmares about this, and and I'm not for one second saying that's what they're doing, but you kind of have to wonder. Um, but you also, I mean, you're getting to a fundamental truth here, which is you really need to know where your stuff is going and how it works. You never get the option to just not know. If you're only ever going to store ten objects in your database, and why do you care where they're stored? Even even right. the most inefficient way of storing it is. Probably fine. It's good enough. It's the it's the hundred thousand, the hundred million that you start to care. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I think you've also you know you're sort of banging against this fundamental philosophy. If you're not willing to use other people's codes, why are you using an operating system? Why are you <laughs> using .NET? So you do have to use other people's code, but you should have some sense of how it works. Know something about it. You can't ignore it. Yeah. No. Um. I I, t- I totally agree. And- you know, there, there is there's always going to be there's always going to be trade offs. I, I feel like uh, I'm on repeat saying that, but uh, right. you know, if you are going to know how it works, then great. Then you can kind of weigh up the pros and cons. If you don't, then you start having to be very very skeptical about what it is you're going to be right. doing with the database. Um, there, there are definitely uh, ways to. So, kind of, we've talked quite heavily about the limitations for this one, and that's actually because. You know, they're, they're, they're probably quite many because you're getting such a big benefit of being able to forget about things. Um, and I think it's kind of a good point to remind people that they're, that if they're architecting their code properly, then these databases should be quite easy to swap in and out. Mm-hmm. That Although the data migrations between these databases are going to be relatively painful. Right. Although some of the more modern NoSQL options do have quite good ability to import and export data. Uh, for that reason, if you're architecting the systems and all of the things that are going on in your data access layer should be encapsulated and shouldn't actually start affecting your business objects um, and and the business logic that's, that's operating on the on the things in the system. This has got more to do with architecture than it has to do with any given data store. You you've got to package up how you handle your data. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be recommending having a hundred different database options unless I thought it was possible right. to architect your system in such a way that you can swap one out and put one back in very, very easily. Yeah. You know, and and we you're not going to do 100, right? I think we were trying to do, do 10. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll yeah. be here for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But it uh, just also speaks to this idea of how many is reasonable in a given application. More than one, apparently. Yeah. Um, my, most of the uh, most of the big uh, applications are, are using multiple ones, you know, at least three or four. Um if if not more, um, in in their kind of day to day running, um, a, a really simple application, uh, one that you're going to throw out within the within the year, probably doesn't need more than one. But sometimes it might be easier to develop with multiple ones. Right. It, it's it's very much a kind of call on a case by case basis. Yeah. I mean, the correct answer is it depends. Really, that's always the answer. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Ah, uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to tighten up the post-holiday elastic search in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I got one word for you. Butter tarts. <laughs> <laughs>
that's two words really but okay. that's how much bigger we've gotten <laughs> it's actually time to give a d experience subscription away to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club but first become a ui superhero with dev express ui controls and libraries and deliver elegant dotnet solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Wade Brooks. Ah, congratulations, Wade. Golf clap for you, sir. The clappers are out. The clappers. And uh, Wade just won the D-Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from Developer Express. If you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we love to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And uh, we like to ask our guests... David, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? It's a good question. Um, over Christmas, I was uh, looking like a small child in the candy store in the Apple store. Uh-oh. Um, mm. I know. Um, and I'm actually becoming a really big fan of all of the home integration uh, stuff that they're doing. Uh, so almost everything that you could have in your house, Apple sell a version of. So kitchen scales, weighing scales, light bulbs, fitness devices. They must all be stopped. Integrated into your, into your iPad. It's a, they must be stopped. No. It's a gadgety, I, gadgety world. I think it's pretty cool, actually. And we're going to find even more of these things permeating our lives. Not just Apple. Especially the medical sensors, right? There's like a whole slew of things. Pretty soon you'll be able to do your own diagnostics at home, you know, your own labs and things. And in fact, you can do some simple labs at home right now with just uh, your smartphone and some sensors. Pretty cool. I've got my tricorder on the way. Yeah, that's definitely happening. The Scandal is uh, in prototype, and I'm on the beta list, and they're sending me one, and that ties into your phone, and it's ba- it's a tricorder. It's got yeah. all kinds of sensors in it. You press it to your forehead, and it gives you a ton of data about your, your current physical state. Yep. Well, now if they can just get us to beam up, we'll be okay. Damn it, Jim, I'm a programmer, not a doctor. Yeah. No, there's my favorite is, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not an actor. <laughs> <laughs> or is an actor not a doctor no i don't know one of those yeah. scotty would come up here i can't read the cue card nice yeah it's my chat mm-hmm. all right where were we when we left off this crazy mess <laughs> i think we've got through five of them oh we're on six make- six on my on my list six yeah making good yep. time we'll have some time to riff at the end what's cool. next um so Let's go to one of the databases that probably a lot of people have heard of, and that is Neo4j. So Neo4j is probably my favorite database. I, God, I sound so geeky having a favorite database. And how do you spell <laughs> that, sir? Um, Neo, N-E-O. Yep. Four. The num- J. The number four. Yep. The letter J. We've done a whole show on it. Yep. Just want to be clear to the listeners. So a big fan of Neo4j, what do you like so much about it? 
So um, the the first thing is actually a bit of a dark secret about myself, and that's uh, that it's that it was it was made uh, to integrate in quite nicely with Java applications, which Uh-oh. was uh, which was my uh, original calling. Um, so actually, you have a very very low latency data source if you're developing with Java because right. it integrates it is Neo almost four J exactly. Right. Yeah, um, if you're going to be using it with a non Java application, then it does expose a really really easy to use REST API, um, and there are a lot of very good. Um, libraries which allow you to query the, the database directly. So if you're not running Java, then don't let that don't let that stop. But you. I mean, what's what's really exciting about it? It's a graph database, which is a, yeah. sort of a different model. And we talked to Tate Modi about this. But can you just give us a sort of a primer on graph databases in general? Sure. Um, so. The way that I like to think of graph databases is, is, uh, is that they're kind of super relational, that you have all of the objects in your database, and these would be the same as the rows in your SQL tables. Rather than the links and the relationships between them having to be worked out on the fly every time you do a join, they're actually stored in the database as first-class objects as well. So that when you visualize it, you get the dots, which represent your entities, and lines straight out of a database that represent the, the relationships between them. Hmm. Exactly the same as the graph models that, that a lot of people probably would have done as part of Comsky or maths degrees. Mm-hmm. The, this is a really, really powerful model, actually. If, if you're dealing with the relationships between data rather than the actual data yeah. itself, then you're actually making it a much easier to query and a much more expressive database because you don't need to actually think about these joins every time you want to work out which pets somebody owns or which movies Kevin Bacon has been in or so on and so forth. Yeah, that is almost unknowable. Now, do you, are there any other graph databases in your list or is this the only one? Um, so there are, there are a lot of graph databases out there. Um, I tried to touch on as many different flavors, so I kind of didn't uh, go into depth in, in a large number of them. But the other big thing that is out there in the graph database space is uh, graph slash document databases. So in this case, rather than your entity being a uh, just a kind of thing in some sense, it uh, is actually a JSON blob. So again, you can kind of store key value pairs in it and, and read out of there quite nicely. So that's uh, we're going to start looking at things like OrientDB and ArangoDB, mm-hmm. which are the two famous ones in that space, which is still quite immature, um, relatively. You know, they've, they've been going for two to five years at the most. So, you know, I wouldn't pick them up and use them in a production environment tomorrow, but it's still actually a really, really exciting space to watch. Okay. Um, the other great thing about Neo4j, just before we, we move on, is that it's just so pretty. The the the, <laughs> the visualizations, you, you load up Neo4j, you go to localhost 7474, and, and all of the little nodes bouncing around on your screen ah, you can kind ah, of ah. start dragging them around and, and oh. all of the lines follow it. It, it it's it's better than nintendogs honestly it's just oh, i start wow. having little pet farms in my near 4j instance start, <laughs> oh my stop putting stop putting rules underneath about kind of when they can uh, when they can form pairs it's like the sims it's, it's brilliant we i think we need to take a moment to let david <laughs> calm down a little that's well and you get this sort of i i, I sort of relate i related to the idea of this was the database that you had the positive relationship back but with back in the early days of programming it's a first love yeah but then it became a pet and that's a whole other thing <laughs> yeah no um it, it the, the visualization is actually quite important um because although although we kind of joke about it it's very very hard to actually get a sense of of the shape or, or the data that's stored inside a 
a, uh, a SQL database, that it actually requires you to have some quite broad knowledge before you can start making meaningful queries. But this uh, Neo4j team call it a whiteboard ability is actually a really, really important thing. that You can actually hmm. just sketch subsets of a graph without having to know too much about the overarching structure. Nice. So, um, yeah, as, mu- as much as we joke, the kind of pretty data is data that people are going to use more often. And the more that people use their data, the better we're going to store it. Yeah. Um, okay, what's next? So, whilst we're kind of on the theme of, of graph databases, there's a, there's a little... Um, there's another database out there which which isn't a graph database per se, but does utilize some of the same structure, and that's uh, Apache Marmotta. Okay. So named after the Italian word for marmot. Um, it was a database that was written in response to a W3 spec about um, RDF. That's about the way in which we store data, so it's innately more findable. So that you hit an API, and you you know you hit the input of the API that represents one of us, it represents me. And then from me, you can more easily be linked to the company I work for or mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the sports team I play for or so on and so forth. And this spec is about using URIs as a way to navigate through lots of information so that both people and uh, computers can, can discover it a lot more easily. Wait a second. Was this what the web was supposed to be about <laughs> in the first place? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean the web is exactly this, but for people that you know, as soon as purple backgrounds and and falling JavaScript snowflakes started falling yeah. around, then you know people are going to navigate it. People are going to follow the the anchor tags in their HTML page and then find out more information relating to the uh, relating to the website that they've just been to. But somewhere along the line, we forgot that machines, or maybe we just realised that machines actually wanted to be able to read it too. Right. You know, and, and so by being able to utilize the power of a computer navigating, say, the BBC website in the same way that uh, a human can and find related stories, uh, we can actually start utilizing computers for a lot more. Um, the, the famous example, in fact, I think it might be the only people who have adopted this technology so far, are the Red Bull Media House. So these, this is a kind of PR hub so they post news stories about extreme sports that people have been doing and i don't know if you guys have had a chance to work with pr hubs before but they're terrifying places in which (laughs) in which newspaper articles get posted wholesale and really lazy journalists go pluck them out change a few words add a personal spin to it and allow them to just dump it onto their onto their publication which is journalism they call it yes journalism yeah yeah so, so this kind of PR hub, this journalism hub, is a location where people can go get really easy stories and then be like, oh, so there's this great article about this awesome kind of skater, but they've got this skater. What else? So this article relates to this skater. What else has this skater done? And you can start pulling things in and start combining them and, and actually making your, your what is essentially a plagiarized piece of work. Right. Uh, start making it actually a lot more unique. Um, and Marmotta, kind of going right back to the beginning, Marmotta is a way that does this that stores, similar to a graph database, but for a very different purpose, this uh, what they call subject-predicate-object structure. So you store a subject, that is you or me. You store the predicate, which is is a member of a sports team, and store the object, which is the name of that sports team. 
Right. And that this is, you're having to jump through a lot of hoops to get your data in this form. But if you do that, then you just get, coming out of the top of it, something which means an entirely new specification, um, makes your data a lot more discoverable, and you can utilize really, really powerfully through things like recommendation engines. Well, I mean, you get, now we step back into search and things like this. Like, ultimately, when you think about linked data models like this, everything's linked to everything else once, once you get a certain amount of data in place. It's, it's inevitable. And then the real question is, how do you filter the chaining down? How, how deep, you know, how many different associations, how many nodes do you want to actually retrieve the information you're looking for? Yep. So, so the, the idea of my motto is that at each step, you only go one step down. Okay. Um, so you look up a skater and it will tell you everything related to that skater. But if you click through to the next part of the API, then it will tell you everything about. So if you go into that skater's girlfriend who's a windsurfer, then you'll see all of the uh, information about the windsurfer. And then you can kind of go into all of the videos from that windsurfing event. Right. You know, it, it, it's, it's a kind of verging on breadcrumb trail. It, it's it's kind of bringing back REST to what REST was meant to be yeah. uh, in this kind of hypermedia sense of just being able to read information and discover lots more information. Yeah, and I, and I I made the joke, but this is what the web was originally about, right? Was linking to chains of links that led you down a path. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're exactly right, uh, and, and it's really exciting to see as more people make their sites machine readable. What is the machine going to be able to do with all this information? Right. We've had, we've had the field of corpus linguistics that looks at the New York Times over the last hundred years, but actually, it's really hard to work out what the overarching trends were. If we can now actually have our all of the information from the news stories um, being put in, plugged into a machine, read by a machine that can plot long-standing trends, then we're going to get some really interesting kind of humanitarian and, and, and social outputs from this, this kind of application. It's um, I think it's a I think it's a massive massive topic. I think kind of linked data is the linked data framework is a is a really really big thing out there but the fact that this database is a really early adopter of it is a uh, is quite exciting yeah no kidding are we done are there more there's two more if, uh, okay. if you've got time All right sure um, we got the time cool um so whilst we're thinking about really f- specific ways of storing data uh there's tempo db so tempo db is Rather than being a specific database you will host on your own machine, it is a database as a service. So they will host everything for you somewhere, mm-hmm. probably in a cloud somewhere. And the way in which it stores data is as timestamp value pairs. So you give it um, 7.51 a.m. and also the number 17, and then you give it 7.52 and a different number. And it, you kind of store lots and lots of chains of data in this manner. Um, you can then work out things about what's happening in that time series. Um, it may seem like a very, very limited way of storing data, and, and I think that's certainly true. And again, we're going to go back to the, the whole trade-off thing, that you can't store all of Google in this database. Right. But by actually limiting yourself to a specific domain, it allows you to run very specific queries on it. So... Uh, Fourier analysis, which is something I never quite got my head around as a second-year math student, is to being done just for free for you in this database. If you're missing, you know, a minute's worth of data, but you've got the hour leading up to it and the hour going away after it, then it can probably work out what's been going on in the middle of that series. <laughs> right. 
Um, so yeah, the, these kind of very specific queries are, are things that you get when you start utilizing very specific databases. Interesting. So I mean, this is this is good at time series. That's what it's for. Yep. It's taking a single responsibility principle and just putting it in a database. Right. Interesting. So when we start looking at these databases, that the kind of paradigm of one database per application is it starts falling apart even more. That you know, we we were talked earlier about applications using three or four databases. Well, if they're using this for their time series data, great, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But then you also need to utilize things for more complicated bits of your domain. It might be that this is the right database for one part of our application, but who knows about the rest? And this is a project on GitHub. Um, TempoDB. No, 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 no. TempoDB is a commercial product, actually. Uh, so it is not something which they've open sourced. I think it is the only one. So with with the kind of key exception of SQL, right. um, it's the only one of the ones I've mentioned today that is not by default open source and freely available for. For, at the very least, to play about with. Um, Neo4j has a commercial license if you start using it commercially. But, yeah. But the uh, the rest uh, have all been, at the very least, free or, if not open source, on GitHub. I mean, often they're typically open source, and then you can there's a pay version if you want tech support, da 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 da, da that kind of thing. Yep, and I, again, that's true for every, everyone I've written here. But mm -hmm. the only one that this isn't true is, is for TempoDB. So it looks like TempoDB has sort of changed its name. There's a company called TempoIQ that appears to own it. Um, yeah, looking at their blog, it appears that um, they have rebranded themselves. And actually, uh, I don't know what that means for, for their products, but it certainly seems that they're getting a little bit more open, putting more stuff onto, onto GitHub. Um, right, although that's just the clients. Yes, um, yeah. But any, any, any attempt to kind of open up their data until you make it more immediately accessible to the applications that's running it is, is never a bad thing. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And it's it's interesting to see the rebranding exercise. It looks like they're trying to make themselves into an IoT company, which is not a bad thing because, right. you know, time series is a good approach to storing data from sensors over time. Yep. Um, that's one of the things that they say is, uh, is a very, very strong selling point is their ability to encapsulate each of the pieces of data that come from any one source. Mm -hmm. So yeah. again, work, working perfectly with, uh, with, with Internet of Things, just very specifically thinking about, right, I want everything for this thing and, and this thing. It, it lacks the kind of ability to relate any of them together. But right. I think but it battles well, a, a tough problem, which is I'm getting a measurement every second from something. I write them in a log, essentially. If you put them in a table, you're always trying to figure out what's the most current data. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always a crappy query, much less doing trend analysis and things like that. Like, that's all hard to do. Good time series work isn't easy. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to almost evangelize in, in this talk is that if you're doing something that traditionally was hard in SQL, SQL probably wasn't right. And right. this sort yeah. of thing is really just opening people's eyes to that. So wait That's a, a great point. Now, of of all these databases that we've talked about so far, which one do you tend to gravitate toward the most? Um, that actually leads me nicely onto number 10 on the list, which I say for last for a very spe specific reason. Um, and, that, and that's Postgres. Um, oh, okay. my goodness gracious. No kidding. Postgres SQL? Postgres SQL, yes. You, you seem surprised about this fact. I spend some time in Postgres SQL, so I'm I'm not afraid of it. I, I I understand its origins, and I'm just amazed that you landed here. You started with SQL, you're ending with SQL. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, so we talked about 
a bit at the beginning about SQL not being that great, or or more specifically, SQL having quite big limitations in um, certain scenarios. Yeah, in certain scenarios, um, and I think Postgres has done a lot to actually kind of counteract that, purely based on the open source community that, that's around Postgres. So almost anything that a lot of these databases can do, someone may well have written a library to do it in Postgres. Uh, MongoDB is very good at geospatial indexing. Mm. That is, uh, having an index based on how far am I from a given point. And that would be impossible to do with SQL. You know, you, you might have a latitude and longitude coordinate, but you know, how are you going to use that in a vaguely intelligent way to work out how close you are to point A? Well, typically you end up doing that in your app logic, not in yeah, the database itself. Exactly, and, and, and you're not really able to utilize the, the indexing, the, the very good indexing that SQL does. And, and Postgres has got a very good open source uh, thing called PostGIS, uh, which adds geospatial indexing to the database. Um, and that is exactly why someone like Instagram has been picking up Postgres. Uh, we talked about Elasticsearch. Elasticsearch is very, very good at text searching. Um, and that's something that SQL has been traditionally not great at, you know, right. Uh, but Postgres, perfect. Let's just uh, plonk in our open source text searching capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you a lot of, of flexibility. But actually, there's one particular form of open source modification to Postgres that is uh, particularly interesting and and sums up maybe a, f- a few of the themes that I've talked about today. And that is uh, and that is the idea of a foreign data wrapper. Okay. So a foreign data wrapper essentially sits between Postgres and whichever database that you might be using and allows you to query from that database as though it were a Postgres table. So you can integrate quite happily Neo4j into the rest of your SQL database just purely by throwing a foreign data wrapper and and querying into it. Um, There's obviously some worries here because it might not be doing queries in the proper neo4j way and therefore you know you have might have to worry a little bit about how to write your queries to to make it most efficient but if you can actually get it to do this then all of a sudden you don't need to worry about having this very very disparate database you don't need to worry about having different pieces of data that might be quite closely related miles literally miles away sometimes right mm. so it's um it's it's kind of quite powerful the ability to do this um the foreign data wrappers are almost all open source in fact i think they're all open source but i don't want to say so out loud when it could be wrong um sure and because of that people as, as kind of you were talking about earlier with with the c-sharp operating system people write them just because they can right and that means that you can integrate your postgres in with uh with a text file, a CSV file on, on the file system. You can integrate it in with most of the databases that we've talked about today. And you can integrate it in with REST APIs, Twitter. You can join your SQL table to Twitter if you want to, for no good reason. That reminds me of an old .NET Rocks axiom. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> <laughs> it's your foot. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, if, if there's a very specific reason to to use a database, then yes. clearly you should use that one. If I am sitting down with an application and I don't know which database I should use, and I tend to kind of hack around with some of the some of the lightweight ones like like Mongo or Neo Neo4j uh, to begin with, um, just to kind of see as the design evolves which one I should pick up. 
But if I already know that I'm going to want to use a couple of these and, and I'm going to want the application to be relatively mature, then nine times out of ten, Postgres is actually quite powerful. It allows you to use SQL for when you need to, and, and it makes the addition of databases later in the development process relatively easy. Very cool. cool. So what's the, uh, the takeaway from all this is that there are lots of databases out there, a lot of fish in the sea. Some are better at some things than others, and they're worth taking a look at. Yep, I think, I think that sums it up fairly well. And Postgres seems to be your fave. Uh, it's hard to say goodbye to Neo4j. But, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but graph databases in general, you you really like that. Uh, it, it comes with a cost, uh, which is a more, it's more expensive to store with data. Yeah. But simplistically, you're storing more data and it's harder to index it. Um, it's harder to scale because you're storing more things in memory because yeah. uh, almost all of your queries are stored in memory. Um, but if you're okay with these constraints, then it's beautiful. Mm. It's, it just makes me weep with joy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's the show right there. There you go. we got to leave it right there. Thank you, David, for talking to us this hour. It's been, been a pleasure. Cool. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...